We'll try to jump ahead, start on time, make all the children's ministry workers and volunteers happy that we finish on time, right? All right. Well, I hope you've had a good week so far. We're continuing in our Song of Psalms, our Songs of Summer um, series, and the Book of Psalms team is back on American soil, so we're excited about hearing what God has done uh, through them and on our trip, uh, on the trip that they took. So we're excited about that. And also we have a team leaving this Saturday. Is that right? A big team leaving this Saturday. So pray for them and for the journey ahead of them and for the people that they will encounter and the work that God has in store for them. So we're excited about that as well. So it's going to be be a great trip. So we're excited about all that God's doing. So let's pray and jump into Uh, number five for us. God, we bow before you tonight. Lord, thank you for today. Uh, God, thank you for uh, the team, Lord, that you used in Brazil these last several days. Thank you for the work that you're doing there. Thank you that you involve us in your work and for the, uh, God, the willingness of those who went to be a part of your work in doing that. God, we also pray for the team going to Guatemala. Uh, Lord, we know that you have work there to be accomplished for your glory, and thank you for the servants, God, that have uh, willingly put aside the time and effort and energy and money uh, to be a part of what you're doing there. So we pray that you'd go before them, God, and that you would work mightily uh, in them and through them to accomplish your will. God, tonight we sit before your word. God, we thank you for the reflections of David and the things that he wrote and many others in the book of Psalms and how it encourages us, God, how it instructs us. And so tonight, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to see the things you have in store for us. Lord, help us to uh, be aware, uh, God, to be open to what you'd have for us to hear tonight and be willing to change it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So yeah, we're in the fifth part of this series, so we may have another week or two left and then we'll move into our fall series Uh, Hard to believe that it's already August, so we're here just a few weeks away from that, and uh, school will start back, and so we'll be in our fall swing, so we're excited about what happens this summer, uh, what's happened this summer, rather, and all the things that we do have coming up in the fall and the opportunities that will be before us. So last week, we asked the question, and we answered the question, uh, what if God takes sin more seriously than we do? Remember, we talked about that last week. If you missed last week, you can go to the website, michaelmemorial.org, look up Songs of Summer, part four, and you can listen to that. And so we concluded last week that God, in fact, does take sin seriously, and that it is often our complacency with God, or as we phrased it last week, how we allow the holy to become common in our life that causes us to take sin less seriously than God does, right? Less serious than God does. And so what, what we concluded last week is that uh, oftentimes in our life, because we are exposed to, because of where we live and uh, the good nature of the Lord that we would be able to live in what is known as the Bible Belt, that we're exposed to a lot of things uh, of God. And so sometimes it becomes uh, normal or common to us. So David last week was our example, and as we talked about, you know, David, of course, is known as a man after God's own heart, but yet, as we concluded the latter part of our uh, time together last week, that David was also a man who struggled greatly with sin, and David struggled with self-worth and reminding himself who he is and who God is. And of course, we do know through Scripture that the effects of David's sin in his life were very long-lasting, 
and they affected many people. You see, sin affects many people. It doesn't just affect you. And so when we become callous or uh, trite with sin, when, when holy becomes common and we become callous towards sin, we find ourselves in a lot of the same situations that David was in. You see, most of the time, sin attacks us from within, right? You would agree with that. I mean, how often has it been in your life where you've had a thought that came out of absolutely nowhere, right? You know, you were totally thinking about something else, and then all of a sudden this thought comes into your mind, and you're surprised at how sinful that thought was. Has that ever happened to you, right? That, that all of these sins come from within us, and so oftentimes I, I think we don't identify that as such. Uh, a few weeks ago in this same series, I believe Pastor Tony was preaching, and uh, he made the comment that oftentimes we don't see ourselves as sinful as we really are, and that sometimes we don't believe that we have the ability or we possess the ability uh, to commit such heinous uh, crimes, you know, ultimately sins, uh, that we, that have, you know, that the world commits, that we would look at someone who has done something atrocious and say, how in the world could they do that? Well, it's simple. The answer is sin, that they did it because of sin. And so for us, oftentimes, uh, as we think about this idea of sin coming from within us, that it does sneak up on us, if you will, that it does uh, come in some of the most unexpected times. So the question that we're going to answer tonight is this, do you struggle with the way in which you see yourself in relation to your sin? Do you struggle with the way in which you see yourself in relation to your sin. You see, on one side, you would say, you know, I'm not really that bad. I mean, when you look at my life, there's not a lot of public sins, and I, I, I try my best to, you know, to handle or to deal with my, quote, private sins, but, you know, I'm kind of a good person. I, I don't do a whole lot of bad things. And so, on one hand, you'd have the person who thinks, hey, you know, it's not that bad. Hey, compared to somebody else, I'm actually doing really good. And then on the other hand, you've got somebody who would say, hey, well, you know, I, I can never do anything for God. I'm a total sinner. God can never love me. God can never use me. I'm always making mistakes. Everything's always wrong. And so these, of course, are two uh, polar opposites of the spectrum. But, you know, there's a lot of people who both exist there and in between. And so we're, as we answer this question to see ourselves tonight, in other words, the question we'll say is, you know who God is. And you know who you're supposed to be in Christ, but oftentimes you don't feel that way, to which most people would say, yep, that's me, right? Well, why, why, do we, why is that the case? Why, why do we feel that way? Why is that true? Well, this is something for me personally that, you know, again, I would assume that you may be the same, but this is something that I've struggled with, right? That to know who I am in Christ, to have an identity in who Jesus is and who I am in Christ and, you know, for me and my personality, I have an internal critic. And that internal critic can speak very loudly sometimes. And so I have to be very careful what I allow that internal critic to say. And I have to be very careful how I respond to that. Now, if your personality is like mine, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so I have to be careful of the thoughts that come up. And so the Bible says in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7, it says, if you do well, you will not be accepted. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And so tonight, that's what we are going to talk about. 
is how sin oftentimes uh, comes up from within us and that it's desires to overtake us. The Bible says that the enemy is like a crouching or a roaring lion and he's moving about seeing whom he may devour. And if you think for one second that you're immune to that, you're deceived. If you think for one second that you can overpower that, you are deceived. You cannot do that, and we'll, we'll come to that conclusion here at the end. And so as we approach this, David gives us in, some insight into how that we can address the root of this issue and the recipe for victory. So tonight, again, you know, we're going to answer the question, do you struggle internally with that? And as sin does come about, how do you respond to it? You see, as believers, it is very important for us to understand our relationship with sin and how it works. A lot of people have unresolved and un, you know, not dealt with, whatever way you would say that, sin in their life. And so we're going to learn how to prevent some of that and how to deal with some of that here tonight. You see, when we sin, when we uh, miss the mark, you know, the, the word for sin, uh, it means to miss the mark as though I'm shooting at a target. Um, when I sin, when I miss the mark, what I'm doing is I'm choosing my will, the things that I want, my desires, my flesh over what God wants. You know, if I know what the, what the law says or I know what, you know, God intends for me to do and I intentionally do not do that, you know, there's sins of commission where I commit them and there's sins of omission where I don't do what I'm supposed to do. And so if I'm, if I'm choosing not to do it, if I'm committing, if I'm a sin of commission, if I'm committing to do that, what I'm saying to God is that, God, I know better than you. I'm wiser than you. I'm more intelligent or maybe I think that I'm more powerful and that I have the ability to control the situation. Now, some of this first, you know, first of this, you, you, you're going to know, uh, but just so that we're all on the same page. And so when we, when we sin, we're choosing our will over God's will. Now, whatever it, sin may be, it could be simple, small, you know, as we categorize sin, quote, uh, or it could be heinous, it could be terrible. Uh, but anywhere in between of those, it's still humans believing that we know better than God or in the moment we're going to supersede God's will or we're going, we're going to make a decision uh, based on what we think is best in that moment. The problem with that, and it's always the same problem, is I don't know where that leads. Okay, I don't know the implications for what I'm about to do. And you don't know the implications for what you're about to do. And so if you commit a sin, whatever, again, that may be, you know, from the simplest in your mind to the most heinous, whatever that may be, you don't know the consequences of that sin. Now, you may say, hey, things may work out really good. Well, in your mind, you may have perceived some scenario to where, you know, you don't get found out or, you know, you don't get in trouble, if you will, for it or whatever. Uh, but that's not the case. You see, what happens is, and if you spend enough time thinking about this, you will totally agree. Sin appeals to the unknowns of our life. You see, what sin wants to, uh, to uh, trick you into believing is something that you don't have knowledge of. You see, sin is going to tell you that your sin doesn't have consequences, which you don't know that. You don't have the answer to that. Sin may tell you that it's not as bad as you think it is, or sin may compare you to somebody else's sin, or sin may tell you that everything's going to work out in the end. But what sin is doing is sin will always appeal to what you do not know, and that's why we fall for it. Because if I don't know how it's going to turn out, there's a chance, right? There's a chance that it might be okay. 
And so what I'm doing is I'm rolling the dice and believing that the unknown will actually become what I anticipated that it would be. That is not true. You see, the original sin in the garden was the appeal to know the unknown, right? The the sin in the garden, the original sin was, hey, if you eat this, you will know the things that God knows. In other words, you know there's things you don't know, human, but you could know way more if you just, uh, you know, you just uh, do this action, right? You eat this apple or whatever, eat this fruit. And so it's the sin, this is appeal to the unknown. And so here's what we want to do tonight. We want to start with what we do know, okay? I don't know all the implications of your sin or mine, which is why sin appeals to us. And so let's start with the things that we do, in fact, know and go from there. So once we surrender our lives to Jesus, we are no longer, again, a lot of this you know, we are no longer subject to the penalty of sin, right? So the the wages or the penalty of sin is death. We know this, Romans 6, 23. So we know that if we sin, and or let's say when you sin, because everyone's born according to Romans 5 with a sin nature. So when I sin, then the penalty or the payment for my sin is death separation from God. So we know that that's the case. And so if I am not saved, if I've not been forgiven, if I've not been redeemed by Jesus, if I've not accepted that forgiveness, then I am still under the penalty of sin. And so if I die apart from Christ, so if I die not knowing Jesus, then I will pay the consequence for that, which is separation eternally from God. That's what the penalty for sin is, okay? Once I become a follower of Jesus, however, so when I commit to follow Jesus, what happens is the penalty of sin no longer applies, right? I'm no longer separated from God. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Romans 5, 8, Jesus died for me, okay? And that the wages of sin, Romans 6, 23, is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So on one side, the unsaved is separated from God. On the other side of uh, 623, the gift of God is eternal life. Well, that comes through what? Through salvation. And so the penalty of sin is now removed. It's very important if you know that to be reminded, and if you don't know that to understand it. Now I'm no longer under the penalty of sin. So now what happens? Well, there's still the power of sin that's present in my life. Now, this is not on your notes, but you may want to write it. The power of sin is still present in my life. And so what happens is that God's plan or His desire for me is that I would grow in sanctification, a theology word, that I would grow in holiness or that I would grow in righteousness. And as I would feed the Spirit of God, as I would participate in the things of God, that the power of sin would diminish in my life. Okay? That's the objective. That's God's goal for your life and for mine, is that now that I'm no longer under the penalty of sin because of Jesus, that the power of sin would diminish. And I was asked this a few weeks ago. It wasn't the first time. Uh, I've been asked this dozens of times. And that is, uh, when we think about the power of sin in our life, that the question is, well, does the power of sin ever go away? Well, here's here's the answer. Well, what are you feeding? You see, if you feed the flesh, the power of sin is always going to be prevalent in your life. Always. The flesh is extremely powerful. Now, if you, if you lend to the Spirit, if you submit to the Spirit of God, if you, quote, feed, if you will, the Spirit of God in your life, then what happens? Well, then the Spirit of God 
would flow out of your life. Righteousness in your life, righteousness out of your life. Garbage in your life, garbage out of your life. You think about it, you listen to country music long enough, all of a sudden, you know, things are bad, right? It's the same thing with, uh, with righteousness. In your life, if you're always listening to negative and evil and you're allowing influences that's not of God around you, that is going to come out in your life. And so the power of sin is very powerful. And so in order for us as believers for the power of sin to be diminished, it's not that I would exert my authority over sin because my authority is worthless against the enemy. It is Jesus' authority that overcomes the enemy. Isn't that what Revelation says? That we overcome by the blood of the Lamb, right, and the word of our testimony. So Jesus and what Jesus did in my life. And so the power of sin must diminish. That's God's plan. How does that happen? It is when we submit ourselves to the things of God, to the Spirit of God. And so because of that, sin begins, begins to have less power over me. Now, as a believer, contrary to uh, popular belief, as a believer, it is impossible on earth to be void of the presence of sin. It's not possible, unfortunately. There will be a day when we're in heaven where we will no longer, longer be in the presence of sin. Praise God. Amen? That's when we're in the presence of Jesus. Uh, so, the penalty of sin is defeated by Jesus Christ on the cross, the power of sin diminishes through sanctification, through us growing in Christ, and then the presence of sin is eliminated through the presence of Jesus once we are in heaven. And so, because sin no longer has this power or begins to diminish in power over us, it does diminish. However, it does not eliminate the power of sin. Now, again, as I said earlier, that would be wonderful if it did. Unfortunately, it does not, not until we are on the other side of eternity. And so when we stand before God in heaven, the presence of sin will no longer be there, right? You know, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love, right? You don't have to have faith if you're standing before Jesus because your faith will become sight, right? Amen? And so it is love. It is, you know, what God has done for us uh, as we stand before God. And so the presence of sin will always be on this side of heaven. Once we step into eternity, it will no longer be there. But this power is what we're going to talk about tonight. And so we pick up in Psalms 36. So I'll wait a second if you want to turn there. It will be on your handout as well. Psalm 36 is where we pick up. Now, David wrote Psalm 36 as well. Last week, we were in Psalm 101. Um, this past Sunday, I referenced Psalm 103, uh, and we'll be in another Psalm of David tonight, Psalm 36. And so, it's on your handout here. This is what it says. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. So, sin, iniquity, as the Bible says it, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity or his transgression or his sin cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil." So as David is writing this about uh, sin and about how sin causes us to see things, the first thing that we're going to look at tonight is the deception of sin. Sin wants you to believe everything is okay. Sin wants you to believe that you're going to be all right. 
Sin wants you to believe that you're going to get away with it. Sin wants you to believe that things aren't as bad as you think they are. And so David starts out with the beginning by saying that transgression or sin speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. You see, it is in the deepest heart, it is in the deepest parts, rather, of ourselves where sin attempts to derail us. It is in the deepest parts where sin attempts to derail us. This is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 2. He says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying that there is this moral code written on every heart that knows that God exists and that there are things that you should and should not do, right? Everybody knows that you shouldn't murder. Everybody knows that. But yet, people do it all the time, right? And so, it says here that you, should not, uh, that, you, that you should not be excused or accused that because these laws are written on your heart. Now, the word for conscience is used many, many times in the New Testament. Uh, over 30 different times you see it. And it talks about this ideal of accusing, as Paul writes here, and the idea of excusing. And so, when we sin, what happens in our life, so when you transgress against God or you sin against God… Your conscience that God has placed inside of you, it is troubled, right? And so your conscience begins to accuse you of the things that have happened. It begins to expose the things that happen. And so what happens for us then is that God uses our conscience through the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sins and lead us to repentance. Now, of course, that leads to forgiveness because Jesus said, or John writes in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, that He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so when we confess, when we repent of our sins, we're promised forgiveness through Jesus. And so this idea that God uses the conscience inside of us, and remember, we're thinking about this whole idea of sin coming from within, that God has put a mechanism inside of us called the conscience to help us to combat that. Pretty amazing, isn't it? And so the power of sin in our life can be combated against by your conscience. So you say, well, some people's conscience is broken, right? Right, because sometimes people, it seems like they have no conscience, that they can do whatever they feel like doing. Well, it is true that the power of sin can erode the conscience to the point to where it becomes a faint voice deep in your soul. And, and I want you to think about it this way. When you think about when you were deep in sin or when you had just given to your flesh, think about how easy it became to continue to do those things, right? I don't want to glorify any sin here, but, but think about when you were following your flesh. It was very easy to do that. And the more you did that, the faster you seemed to go. I mean, think about, you know, uh, the old example is church attendance, for instance. If you miss one Wednesday night or one Sunday, and then you miss two Wednesday nights in a row or maybe two Sundays, well, guess what? It becomes easier in your life to not go to church. And that's just a very simple example of what sin does in your life is because what sin will do is it will encourage you to continue the ball to roll. That's eroding, that's what that's, what that's called, is eroding your conscience of doing what God has called you to do. So how do we know the difference then 
You see, because our conscience can become very hardened and calloused, and sometimes our conscience can condemn what is right. You know, oftentimes in our small group, uh, it's brought up many times that when there's something spiritual that I am asked to do, this is brought up multiple times in our small group, uh, when I'm asked to do something spiritual and my flesh doesn't want to do it, I'm doing it. Because what I'm, I'm training myself is that God has called me to do spiritual things, and if my flesh is against it, then that's one great indicator that God wants me to be a part of that. And so sometimes our flesh, I'm sorry, our conscience will condemn what is right or it will excuse what is wrong. There are people, believe it or not, it's very hard to believe, uh, but it is true. There are people who actually believe wrong is right. They, I mean, turn the television on, right? And so you'll see uh, it's rampant that people have convinced themselves of things to be true. And that is because it derives from within, They've already had a very long conversation with themselves about what is right or wrong, and they've convinced themselves that whatever it is that they're doing is in fact right, and they've justified it because it came from within. So how do we tell the difference between condemning uh, what's right and excusing what's wrong versus God using the conscience through the Holy Spirit to tell us what is right or wrong? Well, I'm glad you asked. The answer is that the difference lies between guilt and conviction. How do you respond to it? You see, if it's wrong and you did it, God, through the Holy Spirit, is going to convict you of that, which leads you to repentance, right? But if you feel guilty of it, and the Bible talks about this, if you feel guilty because of it, but you don't repent you feel guilty because you were caught. You feel guilty because it, you know, someone found out or whatever. That's the difference in conviction and guilt. That's the difference in conscience uh, versus sin, is that sin is always going to make you feel guilty. Jesus is always going to convict you, which leads you, the Holy Spirit's going to do that, to lead you to repentance. The Holy Spirit will lead to conviction, whereas this inner self-talk, which is what we're getting to here, will often lead to guilt. And then you get in this cycle, right? You feel guilty for doing it, and so you try harder, and then you fail again, and then you feel guilty, and then you try harder, right? It's just a continuous cycle. So here Jesus comes in the New Testament, right? And he declared that it's not simply just the works of sin, but it's also the paths to sin that are sin as well. So in other words, in the Old Testament, they said, hey, you should not murder. And that was the law, right? You should not murder. It was one of the Ten Commandments. Well, then Jesus comes along, and this is what he says. He says, I've said to you, this is Jesus' words, I've said to those of old, you've heard it, that you should not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So Jesus said, hey, if you think murder's wrong, well, anger is wrong, okay? And so he's saying if it leads to that, if murder is due to judgment, well, then so is anger, and so we would look at this and say, well, hang on, hang on just a second, time out. How in the world could Jesus believe and say that murder and anger were the same thing? Right? There's been times where I've been very angry, and the consequences of my anger were not the same as the consequences of murder. Right? We would all agree with that. And so as we think about this inner turmoil, this conscience and, you know, leading us to doing that, well, Jesus is saying that it's not just the action, the work of sin, it's also the path 
that leads to that. It's the same thing that Jesus shared about adultery and of lust. You, you read in Matthew chapter 5 a little further on, Jesus said, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust, uh, lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So you would say, wait a minute, time out. Now, so Jesus thinks that the same of adultery and lust have the same consequence. That is not what he said. What he is saying is it is the path to sin, the path that leads to sin, is still sin, right? When I was doing student ministry, we often talked about on-ramps to sin. And we would say, if, if this is a sin, the on-ramp to sin is a sin, right? And so we want, to, we want to avoid that. And so here's what Jesus is saying. Clearly, he's not saying that adultery and lust were the same because the consequences vary. What Jesus was saying is that thoughts lead to action. That if you are angry with someone, that anger can lead to murder. That if you're lustful, that lust can lead to adultery. And so he's saying that if you commit these sins and these thoughts, then these thoughts can lead to action. And so it all begins, where we're going to spend a little bit of our time today, it all begins with how we talk to ourselves. So how do you talk to yourself, right? What are you saying to yourself? Now, we did a series on voices, uh, not schizophrenia, but voices. Uh, and so if you missed that, you can go back to the website and listen to it. Um, it, it, was, it was a great series. But, but the things that we say to ourselves, right, the things that we believe to be true about ourselves. Now, you know, there's no way I can cover all the things that we say to ourselves. But the truth of the matter is that whatever you tell yourself has a tremendous impact in what you do. And the things that we often tell ourselves are a lot of the times from our flesh and not from the Spirit of God. You see, there is no voice more influential in your life than your own words. Whatever you say to yourself is the king of your thoughts. Now, you know, the saying that we have quoted many, many times around here is uh, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God, right? And so we, we say that a lot. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. And so that is a version of thoughts, right? That we would think, that we would, uh, the things that we would say to ourselves. So if I say to myself that God is um, a strict God or an angry God or a loving God or whatever I may say, true or false about God, I am going to believe, I'm going to uh, continue or begin to believe those things about God to be true. It's whatever I think it to be, Right? So if I decide in my mind, just like someone who commits an anus, a heinous act, and then they, uh, you know, in their minds, they justify it, it's the same way that I begin to influence my actions by the things that I tell myself. You see, oftentimes we convince ourselves of things that are not true. Many, many times we do that. I mean, how many times have you thought about a conversation of what someone has thought about you or what someone has done about you, uh, done to you rather, and in fact, it wasn't true? So I thought it would be fun for us to play a little musical game tonight. So I'm going to say some lyrics to a song, and by no way, disclaimer, am I endorsing any of these songs. I have no idea what their lyrics are, so do not go listen to these songs. Uh, because they might be good or bad. I don't know. But what I do know is they're often misheard. So you know all of them. It's very, very easy. So if I say, we built this city, you would finish the lyrics by, 
on rock and roll, okay? But what often people hear is we built this city on sausage rolls. Maybe that's you. You're like, oh, that's the real word, okay? How about this? Sweet dreams are made of these. Or, as other people have heard, sweet dreams are made of cheese, right? Maybe you sang that song as a child. I don't know. All right, how about this one? I can see clearly now the rain is gone. Not, I can see clearly now, Lorraine is gone. Okay? And the last one here is, I just died in your arms tonight. Must have been something you said, okay? Instead of, I just died in your barn tonight, mustard no mayonnaise instead. Right? And so, you know, I'm, I'm messing with you a little bit. So, you know, oftentimes we convince ourselves of things to be what they're not. And that's, you know, very silly, you know, picking a song lyric. Uh, but how about when it really matters, right? When it's really important that we convince ourselves of things to be true that actually aren't true at all. We've all done that multiple times. And so uh, Paul David Tripp, he's a famous author, he says this. He says, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. We never stop talking to ourselves. The things you say to you about you and about God and about life are profoundly important because they form and shape the way that you then respond to the things that God has put on your plate. So whatever you say to yourself about you and about life and about God, it begins to shape and to form your life. And so what you tell yourself has great effects on what you do. And so David is beginning this psalm, and he says that the psalmist is creating things, uh, or the person is creating things that he hates, that transgression is deep within his heart. And he gives a list of, of how this plays out in our life. And so all these things that we begin to tell ourselves, unfortunately, but ultimately become true in our life. So you should do an inventory of the things that you tell yourself. You should ask yourself, maybe even write these things down of what you believe to be true about the situation. That'd be a great exercise when you face uh, a decision to make. Here's what I know to be true, or here's what I think to be true. And what will often happen, you'll find, is that you will begin to impress upon things that you desire. So in other words, you'll put truth into things that you desire that you don't know. Remember, we, we started with that, is that sin appeals to our unknown. And so you'll begin to impose thoughts on unknown areas of that situation just because you desire it to be that way. I promise that's true. And so how do you tell the difference then? How do you do that? Well, I want to give you a couple of things here. Uh, number one, when we think about unhealthy self-talk, well, unhealthy self-talk is typically negative. So when, you're, when, when sin is rising up within you, when you're talking to yourself and it's unhealthy, well, it will typically be negative, all right? So when you think about that, it's, it's, uh, it's going to always focus on the problem. Jesus is not going to do that, okay? It's not going to focus on the problem. Holy Spirit's not going to focus on the problem. And so unhealthy self-talk will typically be very negative. So when you, when you have a thought that comes up and it's negative... It's probably yourself. It's probably your flesh. Number two, unhealthy self-talk typically speaks in absolutes. This is so true. This can be very helpful for you. 
typically speaks in absolutes. So what does that mean? Well, negative self-talk will say, oh, well, everything always messes up for me, right? You've heard people say that all the time. Oh, nothing ever goes right for me. Oh, this is going to last forever. I'm going to be stuck in this job that I hate forever. Or my neighbor is never going to be nice to me. Or my family is never going to love me. Or God's never going. And so we start filling in all these things, and they're all absolutes. Well, that, we, we know that that's not the case in life, that life changes all the time. But unhealthy self-talk will be negative, and that negative will always be much larger than truth is. Number three, the lastly here, is unhealthy self-talk is always reactive. It's always reactive. It, it's, uh, it's immediate. So in other words, you instantly, you instantly make a decision uh, about, the, you know, you, you instantly conclude about the decision uh, and typically it's negative, and you don't think about it. It's, it's almost like a knee-jerk reaction. Now, God is not like that, right? God is not a reactive God. And so what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, the opposite of that is that the Holy Spirit doesn't focus on the problem. The Holy Spirit focuses on the solution, right? The Holy Spirit is going to, going to lead you and me to resolution in our life, not to focus on the problem. Because what happens when we focus on the problem is we get mad, and we start thinking about it, and then we get more mad, and then we start figuring out how can we build a team and so we can all be mad together, right? And so, but Jesus says, hey, let's focus on the solution. Let's focus on how we can solve this problem. Let's focus on how we can have reconciliation. Let's focus on how we can have forgiveness. Let's focus on the solution instead of the problem. Number two, the Holy Spirit focuses on today. The Holy Spirit doesn't try to uh, presuppose things that are going to happen in the future because the Holy Spirit knows that the Bible says that we're not promised tomorrow, that today has enough troubles of its own so that we would focus on right now, what can I do in this moment to take the very next step? Remember, your, your uh, word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path, Psalms 119. So I'm stepping here. I'm taking the very next step that I see that God wants me to take. I can't worry about how the end's gonna work out. I've just gotta worry about my very next step. So the Holy Spirit will say, no, let's focus on today. It's not forever. It's not indefinite. It's not everything. It's right now. And then last but not least, the Holy Spirit is responsive, not reactive. Well, the difference is responsiveness implies thoughtful action. When you respond, you've considered the situation, you know, short-term, long-term implications. You've considered context, and you are responding because you've had time to pray about it. You've had time to think about it. You've had time to process it. That is the absolute, we did a marriage conference here a few years ago, and one of the things that they said is if you have an argument with your spouse, that you should table that argument, and you should take a 30-minute break, and then come back and have that same argument, because chances are, in 30 minutes, you're probably not going to be as mad, right? Now, maybe you go sit in the corner with your arms crossed for 30 minutes and say, all right, in 27 minutes, I'm going to tell you all what I think about it, right? But hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully you'll diffuse the situation because you will respond. You won't react in that, okay? And so you see the difference between this unhealthy self-talk and this Holy Spirit talk or this Holy Spirit guidance. And so the answer then, what you would say, you'd look at this and say, well, this is very simple then. I just need to do a better job. I got to control my thoughts here. I got to set some fence posts. I got to have some fences out here. Well, the answer is not to think more or harder the answer is to take action. Because here's the deal. Oftentimes in our life, 
what we do is we think that we can combat action, uh, we can combat thoughts with thoughts. We think we can combat thoughts with thoughts. We talked about this in the Voices series, but uh, your brain is incapable of having multiple thoughts at one time, and so you have to replace those thoughts. You have to move forward with those thoughts. You can't dwell on that. So you, you can't say, well, if I just think harder to not think about this, to think about something else, well, you're thinking about what you don't want to think about. That doesn't work. So you have to take action. So what does that look like? Well, the best way, and, and this is not original to me. This was something that I learned a while back that has been super helpful uh, for me. So the best way to do this is to think of your thoughts more like a dial than a switch. Now, this could be very liberating for you. To think about your thoughts more like a dial than a switch. Because again, negative self-talk is what? Turn the switch off, right? Hey, I got this bad thought. Remember we started with, have you ever had a thought that came out of nowhere that was super sinful that you were surprised that you had it, right? And your immediate response was, oh my gosh, I can't believe I thought that. I got to turn the switch off. And then what happens? You're thinking about turning the switch off to the thought that you just had that you shouldn't have had, which means you're thinking about that thought right? And so you're trying to flip the switch. That doesn't work most of the time. And so if you think of it less of a switch and more of a dial, well, then that makes more sense, right? And I'll explain in a second. And so the best way to do it is to think of it more like a dial than a switch. Here's what a switch says. Well, a switch says, I got to turn it off. I can't, I can't think that. I got to turn it off. And so what you're doing is you're fighting your flesh, you're fighting your thoughts and trying to, to do this inner turmoil that you have. Whereas the opposite of that, a dial says, well, I got to turn it down. I got to turn it down. You see, if you turn it down, it may still affect you, follow me here, but it will affect you less, okay? If you have kids, you understand this principle. If you have kids, you understand this principle. You have used this method for many, many years. If you have kids, if you've been around kids, if you've ever seen a kid, you've used this principle before in your life. Because why is that? You see, I have become an expert as a parent at multitasking. I'm really, really good at it. And the reason I'm good at it is I've been trained because <laughs> I have kids. And so I have to learn that there are things that I have to get done in the adult world, right? But that doesn't mean that I, when I go home and I, you know, I've got to study or I've, you know, I'm focusing on whatever else that I'm doing, that I have to have everyone to be quiet because that's not possible. It's not possible in your house to have, if you have kids, to have quiet. And so what, what do you do? You say, go to the other room and turn it down, right? Does that keep you from hearing it? Of course it doesn't. But it allows you to have less focus on the noise and more focus on the task at hand. And so it's the same thing in your thought processes. Is that if you, instead of saying, you sit down and you be quiet and you don't say another word, that never works, ever. But if you say, go to the other room, keep the television down, that works a lot of the time. Or if you say, hey, go play in the room and just don't scream to the top of your lungs. That works some of the time. And so it's the same way with our thoughts. Is your thoughts come into the room and they're screaming and they're saying, hey, here's this sin and here do this and here do that. And if you say, get out of here and don't talk right now, I'm trying to focus on something. Guess what happens? Just like the kid, they're going to come barreling back in the room and they're going to bring some of their friends or they're going to bring a noisemaker or whatever. But if you say, Go to the other room and turn it down. What you're telling your thoughts is, I acknowledge you. I see that you're there. 
I understand what you're trying to do, but I'm busy right now, right? I'm focused on what God wants me to do. And so turn the dial down. You see, when you turn the switch off, what you're trying to achieve is perfectionism. And you can never achieve that. You can say, you know, the Bible says we'll get to eventually in our 2 Corinthians series. In chapter 10, the Bible says to take every thought captive. And so what, the way that we translate that is negative thought, erase, negative thought, erase, negative thought, erase. That's not how that works. I wish it was, but it's not. And so what it means is that we've got to take that thought captive and we've got to take control of that thought. And the way that we control it is we lessen its effectiveness in our life. So I promise you the next time that you have a thought like that, if you just acknowledge that thought and you say, all right, I'm going to turn you down. You know what will happen? You'll have victory over that. So we're not trying to be perfect here. We're lessening the effectiveness of your negative self-talk. That is the path to victory. You see, you acknowledge it and you lessen it with your response. Now, what should your response be? I'm, I'm just, I'm giving you goldfish right here. Like, you know, I'm just, just tossing goldfish out on the floor for you here, right? This is, this is just easy step, you know, easy steps for you to have victory over this. I know a lot of people struggle with it. So if we say, all right, if I'm going to turn the dial down, I'm going to lessen its effectiveness. Well, then what is my response to do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. I've got some good answers. Well, number one, we're going to say this. When the enemy brings a thought to your life, when the enemy, uh, the transgression, as it says, deep within you comes to be present, you just simply say, well, that's not true. Everything is terrible in your life. That's not true. No one loves me. That's not true. Right? You just simply respond with, that's not true. So whatever the enemy may throw at you, you would just simply say, not true. You're acknowledging it when you say that's not true. I mean, has anybody ever said something to you that's not true, right? And, and you just say, that's dumb. That's not true. You, you don't have to combat it with truth because you know that it's not true. And so it's the same with the enemy. Number one, it's not true. Number two, how about this one? God didn't say that. God didn't say that. Because then we go back to the original in the garden, right? With Eden. Did God really say Yes, he did. He did. So God did not say that. That's not true. Right? How about number three? God is not that way. Oh, God doesn't love you. Oh, God will never forgive you for your sin. Oh, God could never use you. God's not that way. The Bible teaches us that while we were sinners, while we were running from God, while we were the prodigal child, while we were eating with the pigs, God loved us. That's who God is. And so we would say, no, God is not that way. These are responses to negative self-talk. Or lastly, how about this? I wonder if it could be different. You see, when you bring curiosity into the equation, you totally eliminate the enemy. You know why? Because the enemy is dumb. We should all say that together. I'm kidding, but it's true right? The enemy is dumb. You know how I know that? He repackages the same lies over and over and over and over. He's so dumb that he went to Adam and Eve in the garden and said, hey, did God really say? And he begins to question the authority of God. And then Jesus shows up. And what does he do? The same thing to Jesus. I mean, come on, dude. Think of something new. 
And so he's using the same old tricks over and over and over. And so curiosity is not a part of his equation. And so if you say, oh, well, God, you know, if the negative thought is, well, you can't do that or no one loves you or, you know, they're going to be very angry when they find this out or whatever. And then you say, I wonder if it could be different. I wonder if God could use me. I wonder if this will have a good outcome right? And so you began to be curious about the things that could potentially be used with God. Because here's the deal. We may not know the unknown, but we can be curious about what God can do in the unknown, right? I mean, aren't there things in your life that you dream that God would do and you're curious about the fact if, if he would ever do that, right? Isn't that amazing that we serve a God, that we do have unlimited potential to do things for the Lord that we never dreamed that we would be able to do? Yes. The answer to that is emphatically, yes, and so we would be curious to say, well, I wonder if it could be different. I wonder if my life could make an impact for the kingdom of God. I wonder if God could actually use me after all the things that I've done wrong. And you began to explore the things of which God can do. And so all the while in the background, you got that kid screaming at you, and you're exploring new opportunities to see, well, is it possible that God does, in fact, really love me? Right? This is simple stuff. So here's the good news. When we change our thought pattern, our words begin to change. So we begin to think differently, and then as we think differently, we begin to speak differently. So the deception of sin, the truth of that is we don't have to be deceived by the attempt of the enemy to use evil against us. And so uh, David goes on, he says, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness is like the mountains of God, your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And so see what David has done here? He, he has turned the dial down of the effectiveness of sin, and he has replaced it with curiosity. He's saying, I wonder if it is different. And then he begins to declare all the things about God. He says, they feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. And so we see the deception of sin, and then we see the delight of God. That God begins to, that David begins to understand that God delights in his people. In spite of, as David led with, the transgression or the sin that comes from deep within. And so David shows us his response to sin, and negative self-talk is praise. So David begins to declare all the things that he knows to be true about God. Now, it's been said before, you've most likely heard, but I thought it would be a good reminder tonight, is that the devil, when the devil reminds you of your past, right, remind him of his future. So you would say, hey, well, you know what? I acknowledge the fact that I am a sinner, that I failed, that I made mistakes, that I'm imperfect, that I'm made of flesh. But I also wonder how God could change that. I wonder how God can redeem that. And so I began to pursue the possibility of God using someone like me. And so you say, you know what? It's, you're right. I mean, Revelation says that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. So it's nothing new. It's an old trick. And so what he's doing is when he accuses you, you say, true, sinner, present. But then you say, oh, by the way, we won't be spending eternity together, right? 
Remind him of his future. And so this is where believers take refuge in the truth about who God is. We take refuge in God's truth about who he is. Because listen, here's the deal. If you take refuge in who you are, then you're always going to be seeking for new refuge because you change all the time. I change all the time. My heart is very fickle and my heart tries to deceive me. Your heart tries to deceive you. And so I'm always changing. But God never changes. And so I have to resolve to reside in the truth of God who never changes. And so David declares God's steadfast love, God's faithfulness, God's righteousness. You see how these are all long, steady things? His steadfast love, his loyalty, his faithfulness, his righteousness, God's justice, God's abundance. All of these are long, uh, steadfast things. And so David gives us two very interesting, this is fascinating. He gives us two very interesting clues as to how this is accomplished in the latter part of verse 8 and verse 9. This is what he says in verse 8. He says, they feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Interesting, huh? Well, why is it interesting? Well, the word delight that David uses here is the same word for Eden. Now, that is interesting, isn't it? So what is David saying here? What is David saying here? Here's what David's saying. David is saying that when we are reminded of who God is, and when we are reminded of what God represents in our life, I think this is on your handout, but it's not on the screen. When we are reminded of who God is and what he represents in our life, we are taken back to God's original design for us. We are taken back to God's original design. And so what David is saying is, you know what? Sin comes from deep within me. And he gives the description of sin. And then in verse 5, he says, but God is loyal and faithful and just and righteous. And he begins to remind himself. And then he says that God, it is God's delight that you would give them the drink from the rivers of your delight. And so he's beckoning thought back to the original design of what God intends for us. Well, what is that original design? Well, what God is doing, God is telling us that his love overwhelms our sin and self-talk to which we should all breathe a giant sigh of relief, right? Because you thought for a few minutes, well, man, I got to try some of these dial tricks, you know. I got to turn the dial down. I got to remember all those responses. And then we get to this and God says, look, if you forget all of those things, which by the way will help you, he says, my love overcomes you. My love overwhelms your sin and your negative self-talk. Praise the Lord. Amen. And so God's desire for us is the Garden of Eden. That is his desire, where he intended us to be without sin. Amen, right? I mean, that is exciting. And so it is this garden that David writes that we are to be, it is in this garden that we are to be with God. See, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, the beginning, it says, They heard the sound of the Lord walking, the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Man, what a thought, right? What an amazing verse. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You see, it was normal. You know what that tells me? It was normal for Adam to walk with God. 
It was normal for him. God's desire is for it to be normal for us to walk with him. Now, again, I referenced Romans 5 earlier because we're all born with sin nature, that sin swells up within us and tries to cause us to be derailed from walking with God. It's God's desire for it to be normal for you to walk with God. You see, when we are with God, all the things that are true about Him are affirmed. I want you to really think about this. You know, we've talked about this negative self-talk. We've talked about how sin, you know, attacks us from within. But when you are with God, when you are walking with God, all of the things that are true about God are affirmed. You don't have to respond with, well, that's not true about God. Or I, I don't think that's true. Or that can't be right. Because all the things that are true about God are affirmed. Think about the road to Emmaus, okay? There was a couple guys after Jesus' crucifixion that were on the road to Emmaus, and they believe it was about 8 to 10 miles, and so they are walking away from the crucifixion. And the Bible says that Jesus comes in, and he begins to walk with them. You can read this in the latter part of the Gospels. And as Jesus is walking with them, the Bible says that he begins to explain Scripture to them. So what he is doing is he is affirming the things to be true about himself while he is with them. What a great picture. And the Bible says that when they sat down, they invited Jesus to come in. They sat down and broke bread. And when they did, that they, their eyes were open and they, they uh, saw the fact that they had been with Jesus. Amen, right? And so all of the truths about God were affirmed in the moment of spending time with the Son of God. And so when we walk with Jesus, when we spend time with Him, what happens is all the things that are true about Him are affirmed. And number two, all the things that are not true are dispelled. All right? So all the things that are about God are affirmed, and all the things that are not true about me are dispelled. So the fact that I am a dirty, rotten sinner is true, but the fact that God's love overwhelms that is affirmed. So the fact that I can't be used is dispelled because of the truth that leads with Jesus, right? I mean, that's a great truth. You should remember this, that when you spend time with God, with God, that the truths about Him are affirmed and the things that are not true about me are dispelled. You see, when we walk with Him, we see light from His light according to verse 9. You see, in Genesis 1, the Bible says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. You see, darkness was never a part, which oftentimes in the New Testament is an allusion to sin, was never a part of the plan for the believer. And so he finishes out here in Psalm 36. He says, oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. So we saw the deceit of sin, and we saw the delight of God, and so last we see the desperation of the sinner. David finishes this psalm with a reminder of what light does for us, your righteousness to the upright of heart. You see, where what the light does in our lives is it begins to expose the things in our life. Light exposes things in our life. 
And we're able to differentiate between light and darkness. You see, as a child, a lot of kids are afraid of the dark. Well, when the lights are turned on, it exposes the lack of danger in the room, and no longer are they afraid. It's the same for you and me, that when the light of Jesus is present in our life, it exposes the reality of sin or the trickery of sin, and it makes it easier for us to live amongst that danger. Remember, uh, David began with the self-talk that often drags us down, and now David is clear on what is from God and what is not from God. And so David began to differentiate sin in verses 1 through 4 and God in verses 5 through 9. And so then in verse 10, it's the result of that. So now David is able to see the foot of arrogance that often tramples others, right? I can see what I'm stepping on if there's light. And so in your own life, if the light of God has been shed abroad on your heart, then you can see where you may be arrogant in your life, right? You can see where you may be deceitful in your life. You can see where you may be following your flesh opposed to your spirit. David's able to see the hand of the wicked. So he references the foot of the arrogant and the hand of the wicked that we can see our actions and the things that we're involved in because of the light that comes from walking with God. And so here's what David does. He states a very important principle as he closes out the psalm. In the latter part of 36, this is the last verse. Here's what David said in verse 12. He said, therefore, the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. You see, if you're listening tonight and your heart says to try harder, you are fighting a losing battle. That in and of yourself, in and of myself, we're not capable of defeating the enemy. It is only through the power of the blood and the word of our testimonies, what Jesus accomplished. And so David says, hey, the evildoers, they lie fallen. They're, they're thrown down, they're thrust down, and they're unable to rise. You see, you, you're unable to rise on your own. So if your response is, I got to do better, well, you can't do that apart from the Spirit of God. And so our principle is this, as we close out tonight, apart from the intervention of holy God, you will stay where you are in your sin. Look, you you know, some of those, you know, that dial versus switch thing will help you. But if you don't do that in dependence on pursuing God, you're fighting a losing battle. You'll have temporary victory, but you won't have lasting change. And so apart from the intervention of God, but because of the intervention of God, We have been rescued from ourselves. And so God gives us tools that we can use to have victory through Him. And so I hope this is very helpful. Hopefully you can uh, retain these notes. Go back and look at some of these. When you do have those negative self uh, thoughts that you can go back and say, hey, time out. I may not be able to turn the switch off, but I can certainly turn the knob down, right? And what happens is you are setting expectations of what the boundaries of sin are in your life. And the better you get at doing that, the stronger your spirit will become within you in order to defeat the flesh. Amen. You have the tools inside of you. The Bible says that we have all that we need according to life and godliness. We already possess that. We just have to utilize that in our walk with Jesus. Amen. Well, let's pray. God, we thank you for tonight. God, thank you for the example of David. And uh, God, all the things that David went through, all of the internal strife that he had to deal with, it's the same thing that we deal with. On a daily basis, 
The Bible says that the enemy is seeking to derail us, to entangle us, to ensnare us. And God, we are so grateful that we have the Holy Spirit, God, that protects us, that holds us, that keeps us steady, that secures our salvation. And so, God, I pray that you will use these words tonight to encourage us, God, to look to you, that we would pursue walking with you, that we would be intentional, but we would be bold in our fight against sin, that you would help us to use these tools to be victorious through your Spirit for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Have a great night.